Hello and welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. And this will be part two of three uh, of my review of Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court by Mark Twain. Uh, and in the last episode, I mean, I wasn't really strict, too strict with the 100 pages because I, I read beyond it and I, I mentioned some stuff that came later and I, I've read this book before. But um, it was more just setting up what this novel is. I think, and it's set in its context and some of its themes. And I want to dig a little bit more into it. In the middle third of the novel, it's really uh, after our, our our main character, our Connecticut Yankee, our machinist, our Hank, how he, uh, well, the, we, in the first hundred pages, it's basically him taking power and gaining that power and beginning his reforms. And a lot of the reforms are just kind of glossed over. It's in uh, the middle part of the book that we get a deeper look at the limits of those reforms, uh, the, the culture around King Arthur's court, and the, the contrast between Hank's own time and the time he's living in. And the, uh, yeah, in that sense, it lets him kind of explore the absurdity of life in in medieval times or early medieval times. Well, this is the sixth century, so I don't even know if you can call it medieval. It's like late Roman Empire almost or late antiquity. Whenever um, the the King Arthur legend was supposed to take place, right? Uh, I talked last time about the anachronisms there. These continue. The things like the pilgrimages the uh, are more of late medieval. A lot of the imagery, a lot of the symbolism, a lot of the... What we see on the page seems to come more from the late medieval, even the armor and the weaponry doesn't fit the time period quite well um, because these stories were written by people in the later Middle Ages, high and late Middle Ages, and they, of course, were anachronistic about it. It's like when you read the Song of Roland, all the, you know, nothing quite fits the, the time when that was supposed to have been written uh, or, or take place. It's more of a reflection of the time it was written. It's like if we're writing a, we're making a TV show about the American Revolution and people driving around are driving around in cars using machine guns, right? That's the level of anachronism we have in, in these late medieval uh, stories, the set in the early Middle Ages. Um, I'm not a literary person, so I don't quite know what to make of that or if people have analyzed that aspect of it or they just accept that. You even see this in the art, right? Where like you have Renaissance paintings or late medieval paintings like the Flanders artists and you see out the window and it looks like a 15th century scene and it's a inside the house is Mary and Joseph, right? Or something like that or, or, or Jesus. And the, the back, the, the, the setting of it is all wrong. I think they weren't as worried about it. Um, they weren't that worried about it in those days. Um, so let's let's see. Um, the first few, like one element where we see the limits of reform, if you will, because certainly it is the story is this 19th century American coming in and just essentially fucking everything up, like messing up the culture and messing messing up the society, like an imperialist. So I made that com- contrast directly last time where this is sort of like a commentary on Western imperialism in a way, um, taking a place that has its own history, its own culture, its own experiences, its own way of, of living, and then just seeing it as backward 
assuming it's backward and then coming in and saying, no, you have to do it this way. Taxes should be this way. Religion should be this way. You need to have a newspaper. What are you doing without a newspaper? These kinds of uh, ideas that the colonialists had, you know, when they when they entered in, went into India or China or Africa or any place like that. Where we really see that take a, come to the forefront is in the chapter 17 and 18, which are all about criminal justice system in various ways, where um, we see someone being punished for, I think it's poaching. He's a poacher and... And he's like, well, who's got, where's the evidence of it? And they said, well, there's one witness. And, and Hanks asks, like, well, is the witness lying? Maybe he killed the deer and is just trying to defer it. And they're like, well, we'll find out. We'll torture the guy. And if we torture him to death and he doesn't confess, he's innocent. It's like that old, you know, if the, if the woman drowns, she's, not, she's innocent of being a witch. If she floats, she's a witch, and, and we should execute her. It's kind of like that situation. Um, so they said, like, we're going to torture him. And he's thinking, no, we need like a jury trial and we need a prosecutor and we need to collect evidence and, and all these kinds of things. And there's a big, it's just, this is an element of the culture that he didn't think of reforming. There's all these little aspects that aren't in his vision at first, but he comes across them as he interacts with people in the sixth century. And he's like, oh, we gotta, I got to fix that somehow. Everything is like a problem for him to fix from his own perspective. He never takes the time to understand what it's like now part of this is mark twain making fun of this time period um lambasting it kind of like how he makes a lot of fun of europeans in innocence abroad but at the same time hank is comes off as incredibly arrogant to all his everyone around him by suggesting he always knows what's best for the 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 society and and all that and a good example of that is i think this uh this whole section with the tr this uh, torturing of this this poacher and the time in the dungeon and all that so i'll read a passage from this that that hints it up so he frees this guy um using his power and he says well i arranged all that and i had the man sent to his home i had a great desire to rack the executioner not because he was a good painstaking and pain giving official for surely it would not to his discredit that he performed his functions well but to pay him back for wantonly cuffing and otherwise distressing that young woman the priests told me about this and were generously hot to have him punished. Some of this disagreeable sort was turning up every now and then. I mean, episodes that showed not even all priests were fraud and self-seekers. But that many, even the great majority of them, were down, in, down on the ground among the common people, were sincere and right-hearted and devoted to the alleviation of human troubles and sufferings. Well, it was a thing that could not be helped, so I seldom forget about it, and never many minutes at the time. It had never been my way to bother much about just about things which you can't cure, end quote. The reason I want to talk about this is he, he often equivocates this way. Our narrator saying, well, there's certain things you just can't fix, human nature, whatever. And then he proceeds to like say, we got to fix this. And, and he has some kind of uh, repair job. He, and this is sort of, uh, he tries to find a compromise with the church where he's like, well, we can't really get rid of the established religion, but maybe we can have... Uh, you know, freedom of a religion, get rid of the establishment church. He's, he's, he, 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 as an American, he can't come to terms with the fact that there's an established faith. So he writes this, uh, we must have a religion. It goes without saying, but my idea is to cut it up into 40 free sects so that they will police each other. And as has been the case in the United States in my time, concentration of power in a political machine is bad. And an established church is only a political machine. It was invented for that. It is nursed, coddled, preserved for that. It is an enemy to human liberty and does no good, which it could not 
better do in a split up and scattered uh, condition. It wasn't law, it wasn't gospel, it was only an opinion, my opinion, and I was only a man, one man, so that wasn't worth any more than the popes or any less for that matter. End quote. So he, he's, he kind of has a little bit on we about the religion thing, but he keeps coming back to it. He really does think he's got to reform religion and the criminal justice system and, uh, you know, various aspects like that. Uh, then what do we have? Here we have the knight errantry story as well in this part of the novel where um, we basically the knight errants are just going on a quest killing ogres and bringing back like pigs. Um, and there's one, one part where he goes with this woman, uh, Sandy, who basically becomes our, our narrator's girlfriend uh, throughout the story. But she takes them on this quest to the ogre's castle to free these nobles who were you know, who, who left and got trapped there. And it turns out it's just a bunch of pigs as well. And she thinks they've been convert, transformed. She even says at one point, like, I see who they really are. Kind of see through the magic. And, uh, and anyways, they, they, they have to end up having to drag these, these uh, pigs around, you know, on the way back. Interacting with other local people who also seem to believe the story that, that these are um, nobility. So superstition is something else that he's kind of struggling with here. And, and again, it kind of points to the, the limits of reform. Now, all these things happen one after another. So then they run into the pilgrims. Uh, and there's a couple chains of pilgrims. One are pilgrims going on to see this fountain. Another are just straight up slaves. And the distinction between them, like at first glance, is not that big. The one group are clearly slaves, though. And he makes his critique of slavery... And he also kicks the can down the road on slavery. He says, like, we got it for further reforms in the future. We should end slavery. But there's not much I can do about it now. Um, so what am I noticing here is Hank's a little bit better on, like, the economic technological reforms. He's kind of bumbling when it comes to the social reforms. He has his opinions, his values, his ideas, but he's not really willing to go that far to liberate the people he does want to increase tax revenue he does want to he's got all kinds of thoughts about that he does want new technologies he wants to use coal energy he wants to bring in the steam engine metalworking uh, all that kinds of things but slavery something well what can you do about it is, is kind of what he says um very much i think he might be making fun of uh some anti-slavery northerners who weren't abolitionists in the antebellum period who would talk a lot about how horrible and pain, how, how much they're pained by the existence of slavery, but ultimately unwilling to do anything about it. Um, he writes, I would, I wanted to stop the whole thing and set the slaves free, but that would not do. I must not interfere too much and get myself a name for riding over the country's laws and citizens' rights roughshod. If I lived and prospered, I would be the death of slavery. That I was resolved upon, but I would try to fix it so that when I, I became its executioner, it should be by command of the nation. Quote. So he's like, at some point, I'll build up a movement for this. Um, but this slavery is just as bad as the slavery in America at the time, where we see families being split up. There's ex we're explicitly reminded of American slavery, especially in the aspect of families being split up. Remember in Huck Finn, um, that's, that's a, the part of the threat of on Jim is to be separated from from the culture and the community and the and the people he knows. 
So they, he eventually ends up following like the pilgrims to this fountain, the holy fountain that they're going to see. And like so many things, like the ogre's castle turns out just to be a, a hog shed. Um, this is also very uninspiring. It's simply just a well, and it's it's kind of broken. Um, it, it's broken because essentially the, the the chain doesn't go down far enough to collect water. It's it's not even a, it's close to a fountain. And you have Merlin there. I haven't said much about Merlin, but Merlin's here. He's basically a con artist, a, a you know who can do like sleight of hand things and say magic words and and he, he's he's a he's a con artist on the level of like the duke and the king he can't fix it of course and then the yankee fixes it hank is able to um to do his repairs bring in some help and he wants to though use this to expand his own authority so he uses fireworks to make it sound like a big miracle make it look like a big miracle um and he does that so he makes a big show of it feeding into the traditions of the local people even though while using a you know using modern technology and modern devices to repair this well and uh and bolster his own power especially vis-a-vis merlin who he always sees as the big threat to his his position now the big argument here essentially is yeah these people are full of superstition they're backwards they're basically stupid but I have to use that. That's the only way. It's, we can't. They can't. We can't educate them in time, or that would be a long-term process to educate them. So, just got to uh, accept the fact that they're idiots. And he restores the fountain using his using his magic. Yet another aspect. So, Twain has beaten us on the head of this same theme about like the limits of of his reforms when that runs into like the culture and beliefs and, and traditions of the local people. And so he has this idea of modernizing the army now, and he wants to do this with competitive examinations. Now, remember, Mark Twain is writing this at a time when there's a debate over civil service reform. Uh, prior to the 1880s and 1890s, I don't remember the exact time these reforms were implemented, but civil service uh, was basically an extension of the political machine. This gave what some immigrant gave some immigrant groups power because they could promise to vote for a certain party and in turn get jobs, right? Like the Irish, you know, the Irish cop cliche comes out of that, right? Those, those cop jobs were in payment for support for the Democratic Party in New York City. Um, that was how civil service was basically staffed. And so if your party lost an election, which probably didn't happen that much at the local level. I think these towns were controlled by machines, most of the big cities, right? Nationally, it was mostly Republican, but sometimes a Democrat would win in the later 19th century. But, you know, I think a city like New York was pretty consistently Democratic, right? Because you had this machine politics. Now, part of the effort to reform this was to get rid of political patronage type jobs like this and to replace them with competitive examinations. You know, so you would have career bureaucrats who would stay in their positions even when, like, the, the parties change hands, right? So this was supposed to lead to more, more effective government. That's certainly his idea here, Hank's idea, and he wants to use that, use competitive exams to find the best people. And so we got these really absurd interviews with these soldiers who are all nobility. They all are trying to be officers. They all can trace back their genealogy maybe not all but but many of them can 
And, th and they think that's what it gives me a right to be an officer in this army. And he'd ask them questions like, what's four times four? Uh, what's, you know, what's the universal law of gravitation? These kinds of s stuff they would have no way of knowing. He'd ask them, do you read? And they're, they're, they can't answer any of these questions. And so he's kind of like, well, you suck. Why should I give you the job? You're not the smartest person around. And that, that he wants a meritocracy of sorts. A, techno a technocracy is maybe the best term for it. But he's not finding a lot of wheat among the shaft. Of, of the people in King Arthur's court. Now, if King Arthur's approach in these examinations is basically like, who's your father? Who's your grandfather? Who's your great-grandfather? Are there nobility? Are they nobility? You are. You can trace your nobility back four generations or whatever. All right. You, you, you're qualified to be a general in my army. Now, at the same time, he, he's kind of set up his military academy, his, his equivalent of West Point in... In King Arthur's, you know, in the court, and he's already got his first batch of graduates, and they don't get jobs. They're not allowed into the the officers' court because they are they're incompetence. They're from the standpoint of the of the leadership because they don't have royal blood. So another kind of failure of of his of his reform. Now the way the Yankee gets around this. Um, is he basically convinces the king like we need like a, a separate army made up of these graduates these commoners and they'll do most of the fighting and dying but you know so the so the nobility won't have to die i think they also play with the idea of like a like t turning it on its head that that's what hank wants to do he wants to have a more democratic army where the commoners can become officers and the nobility are 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 the grunts but i yeah, that doesn't really go anywhere. So um, the last kind of reform we get, and thematically it's quite similar to what we've seen before, is the, the newspaper. And he's happy that his newspaper is finally out. He had started the newspaper earlier, but now we finally have an educated population that can write this stuff. The problem is this newspaper, it's, it's just not literature. It's poorly written. It's just a lot of facts. It's kind of banal. Um, and he's not too happy with it. He's happy that it's it's got a market and, and it seems it's a step in the right direction. But anyways, the point of all of this, everything that's happened in this part of the novel, is in a way uh, Hank is at risk of just being another huckster who's flashy and showy, but not and, and taking power and benefiting and profiting off of that showiness. But he's just building off of the assumptions and prejudice and superstitions of the population and by the way these are all things that you could have criticized americans of hank's time and mark twain's time of having as well superstitious right believing that stupid things are of greater value than they really are of deference to authority of ridiculousness in its judicial system um you know like i said with the the choosing of the the military these are exact we're meant to think about the civil service recruitment system and how it's all based on party loyalties these aren't the, there's this is a way to criticize american society at the time as well and maybe even now right as these things don't really go away even after 1300 years 
So in the last part of the book, which I'll talk about in the next episode, uh, which leads into the climax, is the trip that Hank and the king take incognito. So they, they put on the peasants' clothes, they act like peasants, and the plan is to kind of go through the countryside and learn about the countryside and, and use that to really maybe begin the next wave of reforms. Um, now, there's some really funny stuff here, especially with... Uh, trying to put King Arthur in peasant clothing and get him to act like a peasant because even in peasant clothing he kind of walks around in a kingly way and Hank has to kind of convince him um, to not do that anymore but uh, let's let's uh, look a little more broadly here right um, so power in this book comes from deceptions, lies, and, and, and gullibility. Now, Hank doesn't think he's doing that, but he essentially is, right? The wizards, the knights, the king, and Hank himself all are powerful because the people are gullible, right? And he knows this. Hank, for instance, could just have fixed the fountain or fixed the well and said, oh, this is just a well. Gets your clean water here. Um, but no, he has to add the fireworks, make it look like a spell to try to one-up Merlin. He's trying to one-up the other... Um, con artist on, on the scene and there's another con artist who's here too uh, I didn't really mention him but 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 he runs into him too so there, there's these threats Hank notices this from the beginning and uses this ignorance to his advantage he openly does this in his narrative he says well it was a curious country and full of interest and the people they were the quaintest simplest and trustiness race why, they were nothing but rabbits. It was pitiful for a person born in a wholesome, fury atmosphere to listen to their humble and hearty outpourings of loyalty towards their king and church and nobility as if they had any more occasion to love and honor king and church and nobles than a slave had to love and honor the lash or a dog had to love and honor the stranger that kicks him. End quote. Um, but Hank just goes on to manipulate those characteristics, not really trying to repair that. Right. His idea of setting up maybe schools or newspapers is to create a technocratic class. That's what he wants. <clears throat> um, he looks for promising people. He sets up his military academy. He sets up, he educates some people. He gives them or teaches them how to read and write. But he wants to bring them into his order of technocrats. So it's kind of like you're going to have King Arthur and his knights and Hank wants his knights, which are all going to be technocratically sophisticated people. This tension comes to a ahead in the selection of the officers for the expanded military. Um, now, how is it possible for one person to rule so many? This is something anarchists and, and others have thought about for a long time. And for Twain, I think it's simply ignorance. It's not an ignorance that only existed in the past. It exists now certainly as well and in Mark Twain's time. But it's cultivated by the elite. It's sustained by them. It's desired by them. Now, as Hank learns more about England at this time, he realizes he has moral, there's moral consequences for this, right? That they are sort of like, like with the slavery stuff, that they're, they're sort of like empty vessels that allow this brutality to happen to them. And to just benefit from that is a moral choice Hank's making at some point. He doesn't, he can't just say, well, everyone else is doing it. At some point, he knows better, or, or he should know better, right? As with slavery. Um, but what's weird here in this novel, and maybe it's hard to like 
fully understand what he's trying to say here is how the no well how the nobility how merlin how king arthur and how hank can fool the peasants that's easy to see but how the peasants don't see what's right in front of him there's almost like a different level of reality that's really interesting kind of in a metaphysical way like if you were to go back in time would you see the world differently than the people there see it merlin's magic is illusions less than illusions actually they're just jokes but um anyone can see that we can see that hank can see that but the people can't the pigsty could be a castle for the peasants um and and at one point sandy even says like oh they're no bulls they've been converted through magic to be pigs is this creative imagining that's possible through superstition and ignorance or is there another something else going on there in uh, something a little more metaphysical um, now Hank works his way into the power structure of King Arthur's court. He has no titles. Um, he doesn't have the adventures of the knights, even though those are all bullshit too. I mean, our economy is based on bullshit, right? So our, our power structure is based on bullshit. So yeah, don't, don't criticize the people too much before you look at yourself in the mirror. Um, He's kind of just a more effective, interesting new wizard. He's never quite accepted in the court because he is an outsider, um, but he's useful to King Arthur and he eventually becomes the boss. He uses the term the boss. I haven't talked about this before, but the term he prefers to like being a noble or a knight or a king is the boss. He's a technocrat behind the scenes of formal power. He's like the manager in the factory. He doesn't ever get on the factory floor. Um, or if he does, he keeps a distance from that. Um, Hank supposedly comes from a democratic society, but he quickly embraces despotism uh, through technocracy, and he uses his knowledge as the justification for his rule. So he's ruling like a modern technocrat does. Um, this is why he can justify top-down reforms. This is why, even with slavery, he's, he says, like at some point, I'm just going to end slavery. It'll be the people's will by that point, but it's going to be me who just ends it. Um, so that's the nature of power here is either trick is either be is either tricks and illusions and magic and and that kind of sh bullshit or it's just having knowledge that others have in empowering that knowledge like um, investing that knowledge with power it doesn't have to be knowledge can be a way to benefit all society right but if it's held exclusively, it becomes a means to extract value from, from the system. And that's what Hank does. Um, now, one thing Hank keeps going back to here and hinting at is like people being ready for self-rule. He has this conversation directly at one point in the middle part of the novel where he's like, oh, these people aren't. He says, I don't like this idea that people are ready for self-rule. But it's kind of true, right, that these people are not ready for self-rule. So therefore, it must be me. If it's, if it's not going to be Arthur and the Knights, I'm smarter than them. I know more than them. It's got to be me. Um, so Arthur, his Knights, Merlin, and to a degree, Hank, cultivate and enforce ignorance. Hank accepts ignorance and doesn't feel that's something he has to correct because that's just the starting point to his claims for power, which all then just get entrenched and established through through technocracy, right? He's, he's like the Democratic Party of today, right? If you read like Thomas Frank's work recently on the, the embrace of a technocratic elite, 
the the the, the Ivy League graduates. Um, being there, like, and seeing education as a solution to all the problems. This is something that's still very much corrupting our our politics and our and our system. Um, and this is getting peasant societies, pre-modern cultures, wrong. Like, I think Mark Twain, to a degree, gets it wrong. Uh, Hank certainly gets it wrong. And most readers of this are, are probably going to get this wrong because they come at it with the presumptions about what peasant society is. If you actually read the scholarship on peasant societies, they're actually quite informed, reactive, capable of change, capable of innovation, reflective. They understand their position. They understand their choices. And their societies are quite responsive and, and aren't presented as they're presented here. Right. But we're only seeing it through the eyes of of this elite. So that's why we get what we do, I think. So um, I guess that's it for now. Um, in the next episode, I'll finish up my thoughts on the Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's court and talk a little bit more about uh, technology in particular. Um, but I think this is there'll be more to say about power as well. But I think that's the theory of power here. And I think that's where Mark Twain is coming from when he writes this it's certainly a criticism of his own time but i think it's generally also a criticism of power and how it, it establishes itself through enforced ignorance or or exclusive claims to knowledge right what we might call a technocracy today so anyways let me know what you think about all that uh send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com and i will see you next time thanks for listening you